Welcome to the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Hi, welcome to the Urban Astronomer Podcast. My name is Alan Bartelt and I'm your presenter, as well as the owner of urban-astronomer.com, where you can read all about the science of astronomy and the occasional bit of space news. This is the third episode of the podcast, and I'm afraid it runs a little longer than I like, but since it's somebody else's recording, there's not a whole lot I can do about that. Sometime last year, I was asked by the Pretoria chapter of Mensa, uh, the famous high IQ society, to present a talk about astrophotography. It went down well enough that I asked them for a copy of the recording they made, and I'd like to play it for you here. Quality isn't that great, but I've done what I can to clean it up, and um, hopefully it won't sound too muddy. Enjoy. Stick it on the camera, open the shutter, and then you have to move very quickly. 
as not to limit that overexposure. And that was basically professionalized reference. I've worked on that for a very long time. The plates would be made on site, they'd be developed on site, and it required a great deal of skill. Um, you would sit there manually driving a telescope for hours throughout, uh, throughout the night. Amateur astrophotography uh, worked a little bit differently. Uh, they didn't have access to those kinds of facilities. Uh, so they typically used uh, single lens reflex cameras, SLR cameras, um, which those were the fancy cameras that you could buy. Most of us had a simple little instamatic compact camera. Uh, I don't think there's many people here who are too young to remember that. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I grew up uh, it was a very difficult way to operate though because you needed uh, films, uh, emulsion films by modern digital standards were not very sensitive at all. <coughs> a high-speed film might have a reason of 400 ASA, which is pretty low, so you might need a 10-20 minute exposure just to bring out this. So there were, te there were techniques where you could use a gas hypo and desensitize the film, which involved some chemistry that I'd never bothered understanding, even if I was a chemist or something. Um, but I know it involved uh, placing the film in a gaseous mix of RPs, nitrogen, and something else, kept it at a certain temperature, and then that would, by some magic, make the film significantly more sensitive. But it was a delicate fitting process, and you still had to process the film, which either means building your own dark room or taking it to the CNA or wherever you would, would go next shop, and hope that they would not just reject it because it's mostly black and throw it away for you. <laughs> Uh, plus the forms, uh, motion forms have quite a low resolution. Um, if you if you go back and look at them, you zoom in, they they sort of grain, they have a very poor dynamic range. Um, it's it's not easy. I mean, there's a problem of course that the film is it's, it's soft, it's flexible, so it can shift softly. Now, in a normal photograph of your kids at the beach, yes, these are not noticeable issues. You know, you've got good lighting, it, it works just fine. But when you take pictures of stars. It means that your focus shifted ever so slightly. It was very hard to get good results, and only the most dedicated amateur astronomers even bothered trying. And the results, by today's standards, were not wanting to be proud of. Digital changed everything. By the way, this is my camera. Well, it's my the same model. Yeah. That's your camera. Why don't you take a picture? Why don't you take a picture of the camera? I use my phone. <laughs> 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 um, that is a Canon ER700D. It was the cheapest DSLR on the market. Um, I bought it because I could afford it. As it turns out, currently they're pretty good for astrophotography. Uh, you can't buy them anymore. That model is now two models obsolete, but I'm hanging out with mine. Uh, funnily enough, what makes it good is the fact that it was the last model using. Uh, they're using a newer generation sensor, but still using old specifications. It's only 12 megapixels, so the pixels are quite large, and I'll explain why it's a good thing for astrophotography a bit later. Uh, additional cameras, uh, there are two basic technologies on how they work. Both were invented around about the late 60s, early 70s. Um, CMOS, which stands for Complementary Metal Oxide Semiconductor. If you want to know what that means, ask one of the engineers. My electronics is not good enough to tell you that. It, but I can tell you it's a standard uh, process for manufacturing semiconductors and integrated circuits and so on. Um, 
CMOS did not do very well as a camera format for a long time because the chip um, manufacturing techniques just weren't up to the fine standards required. Although these days, to solve that problem, and CMOS dominates. The other one was CCD, standing for charge coupled device. Um, easier to manufacture, they have better low high performance, they're less noisy, more sensitive. Um, but more expensive to manufacture, more difficult to work with. And these days, CMOS have gotten very good. So even in a photography fields, most people are working with, with, uh, with CMOS. Almost any commercial camera that you can buy in the shops, uh, from your phone to the best DSLRs, they all use CMOS. So that's just a bit of history there. <clears throat> Whatever technology you're using, though, the basic principle that they work on is the same. Uh, the sensor is divided into rows and columns of uh, individually sensitive blocks, which we call a pixel. The name picks up directly from the way we digitize images on the computer screen. Um, each pixel just simply detects an intensity of light. That's all it measures. Um, if no photons land on it, it will return to zero. And if a lot of photons land up to its limits, it will return whatever the maximum value that one is. A cheap camera like mine, it's a 12 bit, so that means 4096 different levels of brightness. More expensive ones, like the 14 bit, which will be 16,014. Yeah. Significantly more than your eye can see, by the way. The human eye has a range of about 256 shades of grey. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but with the camera being having a wider range, it gives you flexibility in processing. Not something that you normally deal with in your holiday snaps, critical uh, in your circuitry. The basic function though is based on the photoelectric effect. If you did first year physics, or maybe even high school physics, you would, you would at least know a little bit about this. Basic idea is a single photon of light strikes your, your conductive object and knocks an electron loose. And the way and generates a small voltage. And the way the sensors operated is each time that happens, the electron gets captured in that in, in that pixel, which acts like a bucket. And so at the end of your exposure, your camera goes and counts how many electrons. It measures the charge, counts the electrons in each little bucket, and that's where that, 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 that number comes from. And then it just saves it in a file and bang, there you've got your JPEG picture. Of course, there's also Question of color, but that's sort of the way it always is. It's put filters over some of the pixels, some of the green, some of the red, some of the blue. Um, but that's in my mistake, for now. There are some drawbacks with this though. Number one, it's an electrical device, and that means there's electrical noise, which is just a tiny little random fluctuating current flowing. Not a concern at all with data photographs, where the tiny noise is completely drowned out by the signal you actually want to capture. But again, when your picture is mostly black, that noise becomes visible and becomes objectionable and it actually can hide the details. The other problem that you have is that semiconductor manufacturing is not perfect. Even a cheap camera like mine, which is 4,000 something by 2,040 something pixels, that's 12 million pixels. And they're mass producing these things. And if you're expecting all 12 million uh, pixels to operate perfectly, you've got very high standards. They're actually getting pretty close to that with the modern ones, but uh, older models like mine, you're going to find a few pixels that are either dead where they return either nothing or very low value, or they tend to be hot, they stuck on. So you can take leave the landscape on, take a picture, stretch it in Photoshop, whatever, and you'll see it straight from the other way. <coughs> Not the end of the world, though, this is quite easy to deal with um, in your post processing computer. So, a modern astrophotography rig, 
And this goes to professionals as well, it's just that their equipment is much bigger and much more expensive. Um, the camera itself, uh, there's the optics that you attach to the camera, uh, there's the mounts that you put the camera on, and there's the computer that you use to do the data afterwards. You don't normally think of a camera in this way, it all works. it's a single unit, you know, it's, but you don't see why it matters. First up, the camera. Same camera, but this is the configuration I usually have it in. This is the way you would normally buy a TFNS photographer. The lens that comes with it, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, so, standard DSLR, actually, is probably the most popular way of doing this. Uh, you can also get dedicated astro cams, uh, such as this Celestron model here. That is designed, that little barrel at the bottom, that just slides into the eyepiece socket of the telescope and replaces the eyepiece until the telescope comes to end. Um, honestly, I think most of them, the entry-level ones, I think are quite badly overpriced because if you open them up, it's simply a webcam with the lens cracked off and fancy packaging. The thing is, though, that the sensor does the job. Uh, the kind of target these are generally used for, it works. You get more expensive versions of this, uh, which are decidedly not webcams. They tend to have CCD chips in them. They tend to be high-beamingly expensive. They tend to have active cooling to bring that chip down to about 40 degrees below zero to reduce the noise. Um, and they tend to be black and white only. They, I mentioned the little coloured filters over individual pixels so that you can get colour. That means less light gets through. If you're only looking at blue light, you're throwing away red and green. You want sensitivity, so they're just doing black and white. If you would like a colour picture, you're welcome to get your own green filter, stick it on, take a picture, take the filter away, get a red filter, and so on and so forth. Um, and in fact, there's a, a specialist field called narrowband photography, where rather than using red, green, and blue, you'll get a filter which only passes the light emitted by ionised oxygen, or hydrogen, or sulphur, what have you. Most of those beautiful Hubble pictures that you've all seen, that's the method that they use. So when we talked about an orange color earlier, there you go. The light from oxygen, they would have made green, the light from sulfur, they would have made red, and the light from, or, well, I'm not sure of the exact uh, arrangement, but they call it the Hubble pellets, and it's those three gases which are abundant in those objects you look at. So what you're not, so what you're seeing is not what you would see if you were to go close, what you're actually seeing is the composition of the object. Think of it like an x-ray, you know, it's fake, you're not going to see that, but it's real. There's one other option, very popular, especially when we do our astronomy evenings. It's a simple smartphone. Now, I hate trying to pronounce the name. I have one of these, a Huawei, a big Chinese manufacturer. They're very proud of the fact that I think it's their P8 or the P9. You can use this until it of the stars. I think they're lying. Because laws <laughs> of physics, man. The lens is this big, the sensor is a couple of millimeters across. But, if you have a telescope and you've got to point it at something interesting, something bright, like the moon or, or, or one of the major planets, stick your phone at the eyepiece, wiggle it around a little bit, let it find focus, and then you get a perfectly beautiful shot. Uh, it's, yeah, it's one of our most popular things to do at Outreach. We tell people, really like a picture, give me your phone. Yeah, just, there you go, take a picture. They never believe it's possible. No one believes it's possible until they've seen it happen, and it works incredibly well. In fact, there's a, there's a chap called Andrew Symes, he's from Canada. Um, he's made a name for himself internationally in astrophotography purely with his smartphone and his telescope. In fact, he uh, records videos and 
was then able to split those videos up into individual frames and integrate them in a way I not much time just now. The next component is the lens. Well, you can use a standard lens like this. Um, but literally, I can't read the label, but I... Okay, that will be a fairly short focus lens. Uh, which will give you a nice wide field of view. If you're taking pictures of the Milky Way, there's lovely expansive shots, normally a bit of foreground imagery, like a, a tree or what have you. This is the sort of lens you would use, or perhaps something even shorter, like a fisheye lens, what have you. Um, these are very easy to work with because the short focal length means that your stars are naturally, I mean, yeah, means that your images compress into that small frame. Stars are very small, it's easy to get them into focus. Uh, you don't have problems with tracking so much because, again, the movements are quite small, it gets that manner. Um, or you can use a longer lens, if you want to zoom in on something, perhaps uh, for the moon or even deep sky imagery. When we talk about deep sky, we're only talking about stuff outside of the solar system, by the way. So, galaxies, <coughs> clusters, and so on and so forth. That's where I do most of my work. Um, and if you want to go deeper, or if you've got money to spend, you can use a telescope. Uh, like this, it's just a simple refractor. Optically, they're much, much simpler than a camera lens because they don't have to zoom, they don't have to adjust aperture. It's just a simple lens at one end. Well, okay, it's a complex array of lenses to deal with chromatic aberration, but the principle is it's just a lens, a tube to hold it, and a tube to hold your eyepieces and a focuser. Incidentally, this particular telescope there is a Takahashi, uh, one of the finest in the world, and I believe that model is about $50,000. And you've got to place your order about well, you put an hour on a waiting list and you wait about three years and then they make it for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't need something that fancy, I promise you. <laughs> My own was a little cheaper. <laughs> Mine is more like this. This is, uh, strictly speaking, it's a catadioptric style telescope. It's actually a reflector. Um, at the back of the, in fact, you get camera lenses that are built on the same principle. Uh, rather than having a lens to curve the light, you've got a curved mirror. If you've ever used a shading mirror, or you know, you'll know that it can focus and adjust the light the same way that a lens does. That blob in the middle has a second mirror which points back down, and then the camera fits on the back, or the eyepiece fits on the back. That is an 18 inch model, 20 centimeters diameter. Uh, and in fact, as a lens, that is an F10, 2000 millimeter lens. Although I know you normally want to, you get an adapter which you plug on the end which uh, shortens that focal length. Because otherwise your field of view is so narrow that you find most of this. I can't even capture the moon for that, it's, it's just too difficult for me. Next up is the mount. Now, if you're thinking of a camera mount, you're probably thinking of a tripod. If you're using uh, short length lenses, like I was discussing earlier, this is fine. It holds a camera steady, that's all that matters. Your exposures are going to be a few seconds long. Maybe 10 seconds even if your lens is short enough. Um, but for anything more advanced, it's not going to do the trick. And the reason is that your map needs to move because the earth is turning. And that means your target is moving. Now, when you look with your eyes, it takes a long time. It's 12 hours to go from horizon to horizon. But when you magnify things, that movement becomes apparent. And the more you magnify, the faster it goes. Now, I will show you expensive toys just now. Let's carry on that theme. This is a very good quality equatorial mount. Telescope mounts normally do not look like this. They tend to be something more like a cannon style mount that will be called an altazimuth, because it uh, swivels in two directions your altitude and your azimuth. 
But if you need to track the stars accurately, you need a third axis, and that is the polar axis. You see this large shaft there. That, when you set it up, you line it up with the Earth's axis. So you turn it to face exactly north or south, depending on which hemisphere, and you crank it up to match your latitude. And if you do it right, it's now match with the Earth's axis. So as the Earth turns, there's a clock drive on there, and it turns it around once exactly every 23 hours, 56 minutes, and 4 seconds. And the stars are space station. Incidentally, that period is how long it takes the Earth to rotate. The day is 24 hours because we move around the sun a little bit, which then shifts us. So those extra 3 minutes, 56 seconds are made up of that. Multiply by that, about 365 days, and you get your 24 hours again. So, this is quite a sophisticated amount, obviously. It's very, it's very heavy because you need to make sure it's vibration. If you're taking a three minute long exposure and the wind comes up, it does have salt evaporates, you're going to get a blurry shot, which you might as well leave. Um, it is dangling with wires everywhere. Um, some of the wires are to control the electric motors. Um, mechanically, no amount is perfect. So, you're going to find that. As it's tracking, it's going to speed up a bit and slow down and speed up and slow down. And your alignment also is never perfect. Because you need to be precise to fractions of an arc second. An arc second being a 60th of an arc minute, which is a 60th of a degree. So it's very tiny amounts. So, a sophisticated rig will use, you see that little tube at the top there? That's a little guide scope. There's a smaller camera on that that plugs into the computer. And it just locks onto the star, and if it sees the star start to shift, it sends a signal back to the analysis and just adjust a little bit, keep it in view. Definitely a more vast toy out of my reach, but it's nice to know that you can get them. <laughs> <laughs> and the best results, I'm going to be actually showing you a couple of slides from people who are far more skillful than myself. This is the kind of rig that they're using. So it's not all skill, it's also. <laughs> if you were not to track, um, Sometimes you don't, want to, you don't track on purpose. Uh, these are just great Star Trails images. Uh, if you just open your shutter for an hour, well, what you're going to get is just uh, an orange gray, and that's just city lights and light pollution and so on. But you can remove some of that uh, digitally, and if you go to a dark enough location, perhaps by Sutherland or a desert in Namibia somewhere, you get none of that, and then you get those beautiful Star Trail images. You've probably seen them on Facebook, where it's these like concentric rings. That's just the stars as they move. So sometimes a simple tripod is actually enough for quite stunning picture. The final piece of equipment is a computer. It's not just to receive the images from the camera and process them. You also use it to control the camera um, because you're not just you're usually not just going to capture a single frame. You might capture 10 frames or 20 frames or 100 frames because you're like combined digitally. You don't want to sit there. Four hours in the cold, hunched over the back of the camera. Plus, every time you touch the camera, you make it shake. <laughs> no. You can get a gadget for a camera called an intervalometer, which is just a remote control shutter which can be programmed and will tell it give me 50 shots of four seconds each every 10 seconds. And that's fine. If you ever done a time lapse series, you'll probably go over one. Or if your camera has a tethered mode, and DSLRs generally do. Um, then you can plug it in into the PC, load up the software that came with the camera, or especially with the natural photography software, give it the same instructions and you won't take care of them. Uh, a more sophisticated mounts can also be computer controlled. When I was describing the guide scope, uh, there's generally a computer in between the guide scope and the telescope mount. 
beyond the actual photography though, computers are very useful for planning your shots, um, loading planetary and software. Uh, in the old days, we all had our big star addresses, these lovely big expensive books just with charts showing the stars, and catalogs on the side listing objects, and it was quite a process to plot where the thing is, and then get up and try and find it. It's all very exciting and character building. So these days you're all sitting in a computer, you have a lovely planetarium program, something like Stellarium is a good example. Um, has anybody used any of these tools I can just okay, so one or two people? Yeah. Um <laughs> uh, I'm in for time, by the way. Is there time for me to show you demonstrate that? Of course. Great. Well, just fire up stereo movie. I should mention, by the way, that this is totally free software. Uh, it is an open source project. Uh, there you go. And you can, if you have the time, go out and take photographs of your own horizon and paste it in there. You tell it where you are on Earth, and it will adjust it to you accordingly. I just left it on the default, which is a field of France somewhere. This is what the sky looks like right now from, well, from my house, but it's, it's about 50 k's away, so it's basically the same. There's the Southern Cross, and there's the moon. Let's just zoom in a bit so we can just see the moon. That's how it looks right now. And up there's the Milky Way. And the thing is, you can play around on here and you can find, you know, where's Mars? You can find the objects you want to photograph. Here we go, it's a nice example. Uh, it's a flower stop there, nice nebula. Um, homing around this one because this is an example I'm going to use later on. I took a picture of, of that one uh, about two years ago. I want to show you how I work with that and how I process it. And finally, because it's useful. Once you've got the lovely picture to send to the Facebook or Flickr so they won't get it by your hard work. <laughs> so the basic process, the target acquisition, the calibration, uh, capturing your actual light frames, uh, pre-processing, stacking, and post-processing. Right. Everyone's got their own process, by the way, and over this experience you'll find the way you like to do things. Um, but these are the basic steps. Some of them can be skipped depending on what you're doing. Um, getting them all right takes years and years of dedicated practice. Uh, years that I haven't had, so I think you'll like my pictures when it's, until I'll show you what the real pros are doing. Uh, target acquisition. Uh, I kind of walked you through that just now, Stellarium. It's choosing your image you want to take a photograph of. It's not just choosing a target, though, it's also bearing in mind where it is in the sky, uh, how it's going to move over the time you're planning to photograph. You don't want to get all set up to spend an hour or two calibrating, get things ready, and then it just for the horizon. You can waste it. Sucks. You may have done that. So, proper planning. So you do a lot of headaches. That's, I still don't do it for some reason, but here we go. And <laughs> <laughs> life's an adventure. Uh, <clears throat> for the next stage, the thing you do once you're actually outside is you calibrate. Now, I mentioned earlier the problems that digital photography has with noise, dead pixels, and so on. Um, these are steps that you take to cancel it out, to subtract it digitally from your photographs. So the first thing you do is, there's three sources of, I'm going to call them all noise. Uh, the first is just your general bias colors. 
basically each one of those pixels is if it's a slightly different and has a slightly different ordinal value or rest value. And when there is nothing in there, there is still a tiny voltage and it varies ever so slightly. It's a fixed aspect of the camera, so you just stick the shutter on, set your shutter speed to whatever its fastest is, and just capture a few of it. Because you don't want to actually take a picture of anything except the electrical currents that are in your camera. You take this picture, you look at it, it'll look black, but if you process it enough, turn out the brightness, you will see a faint pattern there. Capture that. In fact, actually, you capture a few hundred inches of lighting we the average light digitally, just to make sure we're not capturing any random areas along with me. The next image you capture uh, is your, your dark frames. Now, this is not the characteristic noise, this is more the electrical noise that you're getting. So, as opposed to the standard baseline currents, this is actual noise generated. <coughs> Regular photography, you don't care because your exposures are fractions of a second typically, plus your light levels are high enough that this is completely drawn out. But, photographing a black sky at a very high ISO rating, your shutter's open for 30 seconds, you're going to get a lot of, a lot of noise. So, what you do is you're again, you put the lens caps still on, put your camera set to whatever settings you use for the photograph. You take a picture and you take another picture, take another picture. 10 or 20 is usually enough. Again, you can combine them digitally. Uh, and the results are it's again just a black screen. But again, I've exaggerated on there, I've stretched it and uh, brought it out. And you can see there's noise there, but you can just make out a sort of almost a grid pattern. So now we can subtract that as well. Incidentally, the point of taking so many pictures is you want to try and average out the noise. We're not worried. Since the noise is, strictly speaking, it's random, but there is an, order, uh, an, an element of order to it. So we're trying to extract that order, so it just can move it. We can't know what the noise specifically on the scene is going to be, but this goes a long way to reducing. Then we capture our flat field. This is our non-electronic problems. Your lenses are never perfect. They will always have a bit of vignetting or a bit of distortion. Um, there will be dust on the sensor, dust on the lens, and that's what we've got here. The vignetting you can see here, the corners are a little bit darker in the center. You can also see the little specks of dust and there's a little hair area. <coughs> that's showing up in every single photograph. Now we can re remove this as well. How do you take that? Sorry, what do you take? Oh, um, you aim the camera at, a, at, at the most neutral, flat, white source that you can. Some people manufacture a light box. They'll use frosted glass and try and get the most beautiful lighting that they can. And then they will stretch, say, a white t shirt over the lens uh, just to try and diffuse it as much as possible. And uh, the alternative method that I typically use because I have so such a limited time, I can't be missing the right stuff like that. I just point it at the sky at twilight, uh, try and get as far opposite the sun as I can get. Um, you usually pick up a few stars because they're visible, but by capturing a number of them over time and then averaging it out, well, taking the median values, you can erase those stars and then you get some of the properties. That will then also be removed. Is there another case for the white sheet? Um, yeah, you can do that as well. Um, the, problem, the only problem with that is that your lighting tends not to be uniform. It'll be coming from an angle because the camera's in your way. There's lots of ways of doing it. We all have our favorites. Um, I personally found but not to be as effective, but I'm sure if you put it in sunlight, it will work well. You just need to be sure that it's as uniform as possible. Yeah. And, and do you need to do this every evening, or is it a once-off process with the camera? Opinion varies. Um, my feeling is that since 
unless you're leaving your, your, your camera and your telescope set up exactly as it is and not touching it, then that's fine. But if you remove the lens and put it back on, if you've adjusted focus or was using a camera lens, you've turned up the zoom, you're changing that, that pattern of distortion. Um, it's a bit of a purist thing, my angle. So like I said, some people are turning out quite beautiful pictures without, without stressing too much. So that's why I'm the art of astro photography, not the science. Alright, so then I refer to them as the light frames. Um, okay, you know what, you don't need to kill the lights, this is showing up just fine. Uh, so cool because this is the actual light that we're actually trying to capture. I pointed it to an area of sky and I snapped, I can't remember how many, there's a note later on. The individual shots look like this. It doesn't reveal much, but there is a wealth of data in that in that airtight file, in that um, not a JPEG all the way, that is already compressed and processed to the world. So like uh, you capture images in raw mode, so you've got all the data as it came off the chip. And there's a lot of information in there that you're gonna see stuff coming out. Um, the process for capturing these by the way, I mentioned intervalometers or tethering, you get your camera set up, you line it up, you get your mouse tracking. Set it going and then you go inside the camera team. Make sure they come out regularly to make sure that it hasn't drifted off target because, like I said, the alignment is never perfect. Make sure you have the dew forming on the lens because then you can stop from that bad tethering. There's ways to get around that. Uh, electrical heaters that go up around the lens just to raise the temperature by two or three degrees that help. And if you're desperate, get an extension cord and a hairdryer with a blower, which I've resorted to once or twice. Oh, and of course, make sure that you're still in focus. Because as the light progresses, your footprint cools down, glass shrinks, and focus starts to shift. So, by the way, I'm talking about a lot of things that I personally don't bother with because they are a little far more time and energy than I have at my disposal. I administer it by running the section, I don't do some of myself. Uh, at least not that uh, the dedicated people that you need to go into magazine. Oh, by the way, if you're taking a wide field shot, you're not doing my sort of deep sky thing, then it's a lot simpler. Just aim and shoot. There you go. Capture a couple shots, and then maybe have one with a tall shining so you can see the foreground as well. Alright. This is what we get after we've done the pre processing. So we have literally subtracted the dark, uh, the bias and the dark frames. And when I say subtracted, I mean it's literally a mathematical process. Your software just goes through the picture one pixel at a time and says, okay, what is the dark frame not? Okay, that pixel is uh, the value of 20, almost completely black. And on the dark frame, it's five, so track five. And so it goes through, and that way you remove that noise uh, from the image. It is the characteristic of this pattern. But the flat field, you don't subtract it, you divide. Um, the reason being that we want to get back to a uniform field. Um, I can show you the maths later, so I'm not going to try into it now without a, without a pencil or paper in my hand. But by dividing it, you can return to what it's supposed to be. Those processes have been run now on that frame. Uh, and the final step here has been converted to developers. Because we're working in law, you are literally at black and white. Um, you have not applied any color yet. So once that's done, then you can, do, you can develop the image and it becomes color. Um, so if you look carefully, you'll notice some of the stars are a little bit orangey, yellowy, but there's still very little to see here. If you look very carefully, 
just make out something's fuzzy over there. You might have to turn the lights off to see it. If you can't see it, that's fine. Take a look for it's there. I can see it on here because it's a bit of contrast on the screen. Oh, one more thing. Um, if you go back to the other one, those are the stars are flicking back and forth. Because my light is not perfect. And over the hour or so that I was working, it's slowly drifting. It's tracking, but it's not tracking exactly at the right angle, so we get that slight north south shift. Alright. Then we do the interesting stuff. This is where we start stacking. I captured my how many it was, I think it was 20 or 30 frames. And we we combine them. There's a number of algorithms that can be used. The most basic is simple addition. I've talked about how we subtract the dark, here we add them together. Um, for a long time I thought this was meant just to brighten the picture, but that's not actually what you're doing at all. The, I mean, the vans are getting lighter, but you make making everything lighter. So what it actually is doing is, increase, is improving your signal-to-noise ratio. And the way that works is the noise we know is random. The, the non-random noise we've already removed with those calibration shots. The random stuff, though, is entirely random from picture to picture, from, from frame to frame. So if we add those together, you're going to find that sometimes you're adding a value of 100, sometimes you're adding a value of 1, sometimes you're adding a value of 10, whatever you So the total doesn't grow very, doesn't grow very fast. But your actual data, the value that you wanted, the actual star itself, might have a value of 50. 50 plus 50 plus 50. You can see that grows arithmetically. And so your actual signal, the light that you actually wanted to see, becomes brighter a lot more than the noise becomes lighter. And so it starts to stand out. Uh, it's not always practical though, because sometimes your light is never already near the brightness limits of your sensor, and then you just blow it out, you overexpose it. So there are other techniques you can use. Uh, there is median stacking, where rather than simply adding them, you apply just a basic standard statistical function. You find the median value of each pixel. And if the value varies by, two, uh, by the number of standard deviations, the way you would discard outliers, if you press it data statistically, it chucks it away. So if you've got like a hot pixel or a random spike of brightness, just a bit of noise, it gets erased. Very clever. You don't get a lot of lightning, but it is an excellent job of removing noise. There are other more complex algorithms, uh, like the one I used here, it's called signal flipping, which is just a more sophisticated version of the median. It's, it's a bit of addition and it's a bit of, uh, of, 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 of uh, noise reduction. There's ones that will just start the maximum and minimum values, which says, okay, all these pixels, what is the brightest one? Delete that and just have the rest. Um, these are all ways of dealing with different kinds of noise that you might come across. In practice, just try them all and see which one gave the most attractive results. Now, if you're taking scientific data, if you're working in a professional observatory, different story. Then you know in advance what you're going to use because you're aiming for useful data. We're making pretty pictures. We try to keep it true to the original, but we have that aesthetic judgment that we're allowed to make. There is a slight problem though. Uh, well, there's a few. First of all, it's not colorful, it's green. Plus, you've got this blur in the bottom edge there. Oh, there's a step I forgot to mention. And whenever I show you how the stars flicking back and forth, there's a process uh, called registration where you simply compare the images and see, okay, this is image number one, image number two has shifted by about half a minute. So we just shift it again. Picture number two, we shift it more, picture three, and so on. But that means now that your picture is moving across your frame. So some of the images will be cropped on the top left and just empty black on the right. And you can see those 
but it's aiming up on the bottom line. So we need to crop that out, we need to fix the color. Basically, this is now a job for Photoshop. Or, actually, strictly speaking, you'd be better in Lightroom, which is another early product. Myself, I use free stuff because I'm cheap. So, once you've done all that, you get to this. Now, bear in mind, although there's an enormous amount of processing there, I haven't drawn anything, I haven't used any of the paint tools, I haven't filled in colors, I haven't. You know what I mean? What I've taken is the data that's there, I've removed the noise, and I've just enhanced it. I've in fact, let me see. I've got the details written here. Okay, this image was 50 frames that were used. Each one 15 seconds long. The camera was set at ISO 800. It was through my telescope with that adapter lens I mentioned, so shooting at 1260 millimeters, uh, f6.3. The camera, the camera mounted a prime focus on the telescope, which means the telescope just becomes a glorified oversized lens. I'm now to equatorial tracking, but it's got none of that sophisticated guiding, computer controlled guiding, which is part of why there was such a bad shift. Um, it's also why my stars are not very sharp, they're quite big circles. That's a failing of my equipment life, more than my skill, I think. The image does have problems though, uh, it's quite noisy. You're... Okay, it's not actually so visible on the projector, but on a, if I was to put it in a nice print, you'd see it's got little red speckles all over the place. Um, and that's just, that's just noise that I wasn't able to eliminate. If I was to process it now, I would probably do a better job of cleaning it better. Um, so what do you need to know? Otherwise, I adjusted the color balance. That green tint, by the way, comes because DSLR cameras have the pixels, uh, the, the color masking, it's arranged green, red, blue, green, which means you've got twice as many green pixels as you do red and blue. And that is done because your eyes are much more sensitive to green. So, for regular photography, this mimics your eyes sensitivity. But in a photograph like this, where we're not mapping that curve, we just get a green photo. So, shift your color balance, fix it out, until your whites are white, and then the rest of the colors take care of themselves. Also, I've turned up the saturation, the light ones, and a couple of other sort of tools that you've seen on any photographs and stuff. And that is the basic process. Uh, I've got a couple, of, uh, a couple more shots that I've captured. This is a galaxy uh, known as Centaurus A. It is it's about a third of the size of the full moon, actually. Uh, to the naked eye, it's invisible. To binoculars, it's a just barely detectable fuzzy patch. But for the long exposure, first epic shot, you get this lovely thing. It's called Centaurus A, incidentally, because it was one of the first radio galaxies that were discovered. Um, it's, uh, if you look in that region of sky of the radio telescope, it shines intensely brightly at radio waves. We know it's the radio history for decades until we discovered recently that most galaxies have got massive black holes in them. And by massive, I mean, well, the technical term is supermassive, as in millions of times more massive than our own sun. And that radiation, that uh, is not just radio waves, you're getting all across the electromagnetic spectrum, hard X rays, gamma rays, and everything. And it's all just generated from the material falling in. As it falls in, it spirals around and heats up and glows hot, it becomes hot enough to glow in all these frequencies. And you get little jets of energy shining out of things, and the process is not fully understood yet. Probably something to do with magnetism. But, um, very interesting object. This is actually a single frame. Uh, a fair bit of processing. Mainly, I just stretched the contrast. 
as in your normal Windows Photo Viewer, Thermo Contraster, same bit, opened up Thermo Contraster. What I was actually trying to do is to determine the color saturation line. Uh, if you have good enough data, you can crank up the saturation enough to make the colors more and more visible, and the illumination becomes quite colorful. Uh, I'm telling you this out of interest, I can't show it to you because my pictures aren't that good, but uh, it actually gives you quite a nice mineral line of the different minerals that are present in there. Another picture. Uh, two objects in there. This is a globular cluster. Um, I used a camera laser, this one. I believe I was shooting at 55 millimeters. Just the laser came with the camera to maximum zoom. Uh, but the camera itself was mounted piggybacked onto the telescope, so there was sort of tracking. I don't have a dedicated mount for this. And yeah, captured a number of long exposure frames. The larger, fuzzier object is called the Small Magellanic Cloud. It is one of two naked eye satellite galaxies around the Milky Way. They called their dwarf galaxies, they're quite small. Uh, Milky Way has, I think, something like 300 billion stars. This is maybe a few hundred million. Little one. And they just happen to be that close together this time. Uh, the object cluster, by the way, is several hundred thousand stars. They are dotted in a spherical uh, arrangement around our own galaxy. Spherical balls, some of the oldest stars in the universe are formed in these, were formed in these. And this final one, um, about a year old, it's one I'm quite proud of. Remember that picture I showed in the beginning, the Orion Nebula? That's what I managed in my backyard with my telescope. That is a star forming region. Um, sorry, pop up here, distracting me. Do that later. Uh, yeah, that is a stellar nursery. It's a vast cloud of, of molecular hydrogen gas, uh, the turbulent region, and it is glowing. The reason it's glowing is because as gases collapse, stars are forming. You've got these young, super hot stars shining brightly in ultraviolet light, which energizes the gas in the same way that. Are these not that fluorescent? <laughs> Let's pretend that they're fluorescent lights, right? <laughs> the same way that the, the electron stream inside your. Actually, is this should be true? Well, anyway, so we that the gas inside of fluorescent tube is energized uh, and it emits light as it returns to the neutron interstate. I'm sure I missed that place. Uh, and I studied physics too, I should know better. I'll just see that last thing. Yeah. Is there any more to say about this? Uh, yeah, this is incidentally, you can see this with an eye. this object. Does anybody know how to find Orion's belt? Right, do you know the, the rest of the constellation of Orion? You know Orion's silk, little star. Next time you see it, you, you can't see it now, but give it about three or four months, you'll be able to see it rising in the east as the sun goes down. The middle star of Orion's belt, look carefully, it's a bit fuzzy, right? That's it. This one's through my telescope, uh, also 1260 millimeters to 6.3. Um, I can look up the, the details for you. It's actually, you actually wrote out the capturing this image on a, a, in an article on our website. Um, I'm going to give you contact details now. If you want to know more, just mail me, you can browse the website. So this is actually the end of my images. I'll show you a couple more afterwards. But before then, while I'm still paying attention, might as well check notes. Uh, well, that's my website. Uh, you can email me there, you can talk to me on Twitter or on Facebook. Yeah, I should have got the full address. Well, just search my name on Facebook, look for the guy with the big beard. <laughs> and find the website itself. Um, 
Yeah, I suppose before I show you what the real girls are doing, are there, are there any questions? Anybody want to know anything more? Mm. I was going to include that. Um, I wasn't quite happy with the quality. I'll show you. Just bear in mind that it's not my best work. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, time lapse work, it's uh, the same principle as stop motion animation. You take a picture, you wait a while to another picture. I, mean, I use the same equipment, um, except typically I'm not doing it through the telescope. I'll just say the, the same amount. I tend not to track. Okay, I'll track it through the solar eclipse, but uh, I use a computer just captures an image every 10 seconds or so. You need to do a little bit of maths because you're probably going to be combining it into a 30 frames per second video. So you've got to work out, well, I want the video to be about a minute long, this is a four hour process. And for the solar eclipse, I ended up uh, capturing a frame every 15 seconds, and that 30, uh, at 30 frames a second, it came to about a half an hour, about a two minute video. If anyone's got a mental arithmetic, they can correct me. Anyone? Uh, no? Great. Yeah, so, anybody else? Anything else? Quite well, that's everything. That was me talking about astrophotography to the Pretoria chapter of Mensa. If you'd like to know more about astrophotography, you can mail me at podcast at urban-astronomer.com or you can find me on Twitter at uastronomer, that's a letter U, astronomer, or on Facebook. Uh, the link is on the website and in the show notes. If you want to see the photographs I was talking about in the presentation, you can find them all in the show notes as well. Remember to tune in for the next episode and uh, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. You make it all worthwhile. <laughs>